You're listening to the Flip Houses Like a Girl podcast, where we educate, empower, and celebrate everyday women who are facing their fears, juggling family and business, embracing their awesomeness, and wholeheartedly chasing their dream of flipping houses. Each episode delivers honest-to-goodness tools, tips, and strategies you can implement today to get closer to your first or next successful house flip. Here's your spiky-haired, breakfast taco-loving host, house-flipping coach, Debbie DeBeery. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for spending some time with us. So I'm going to be sharing with you another one of our coaching program members, one of our flip sisters, her story, her first flip journey. So we're going to be talking to Amanda and she is in Lake of the Ozarks, beautiful area. And her story, I'm sure, will resonate with many of you. She's married, she has children, and she was completely burned out in her corporate job. And she was ready to make a change. She not only was ready to make a change, but it was one of those, I have to make a change or else kinds of things, which I'm sure we can all relate to. Anyway, we're going to be talking to her, sharing her details of her first flip, how she found it, how she financed it, the issue that came up with her lender at the 11th hour, how she resolved it, how she resolved all the other things that came up. Because that's really what we do. We manage the three P's, people, problems, and the project. And she takes us through how she did all that. So hang tight. You're going to love her. You're going to love her story. She's got some really great wisdom to share. And yeah, let's go. You want to just start by introducing yourself, letting us know a little bit about you? Sure. Uh, My name is Amanda and I live at the Lake of the Ozarks in central Missouri with my husband and our three young daughters. Uh, We moved here in mid 2020, like at the height of the pandemic with our youngest being one month old. Um, we moved from St. Louis. I grew up in central Missouri, so it was kind of just like coming home. Um, and we were actually planning to move pre pandemic, um, in 2019, we both kind of, we'd been working in the corporate world in St. Louis for over 10 years and we had this young family and we were like, okay, something's probably got to give here. Like this doesn't feel like it's going in the right direction. So we were able to both switch to working remotely, which allowed us to move here. And, um, you know, that was kind of before everyone else switched to remote work. So it was still kind of like a little bit of a new thing. Um, but anyway, so we moved here in 2020 and we got the kids settled and everything. And then towards the end of 2020, um, I found your podcast and I started binging every free thing that I possibly could. (laughs) And then I ended up joining in April of last year in 2020. Wow. What was your, what does your husband do? So we're both engineers. We met in college um, at an engineering university here in Missouri, and um, he's a mechanical engineer by school. I'm an architectural engineer, um, but we both have gone in (laughs) different directions. Um, I graduated 
at the height of like right after the housing market crashed and everything. So my degree in architectural engineering wasn't great trying to find a job in construction at that time. So I actually found a job working as more of a mechanical engineer doing um, HVAC and plumbing design. Okay. And I actually got the job because I knew how to do the 3D modeling software that they used. It wasn't even an engineering position at the time because construction just wasn't happening in 2010 when I graduated. Um, And then he is a mechanical engineer. Um, that's what his dad was. He kind of always knew he wanted to be an engineer, but he's now doing more software engineering type stuff. So he's kind of found his path too. Yeah. So yeah, he's a big computer nerd. Um, y'all are kind of both nerds. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, we really are truly. <laughs> Your yes. girls must be like super nerdy. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. I mean, I try to try to make them cool, but it's just gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, nerds are cool, right? Yeah. Um, Okay. So you joined in April. Yes. And all right. So let's go through your first flip. When okay. did you close on the sale of it? The, the sale or the purchase? The sale of it. Oh no. I'm, I know it's, it seems weird. I'm going backwards. Okay. So I closed on February 18th. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then when, when did you close on the purchase of it? Um, September 30th of 21. Okay. And how did you find it? Um, yellow letters off, off market. Um, I, so I joined in April of last year. Um, you know, I kind of tried to dive in, but then I was still trying to manage the kids and everything. And there was a lot of, I feel like I'm not doing things fast enough and I was ready to go. And so we went, we were going on a family vacation in July last year. And I was like, I just need to get some of these letters out in the mail. And I had been driving for dollars with uh, my one-year-old, like during nap times, I would drive around the neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a list of properties and I just sat down. I was like, I've got to write some of these letters and get them in the mail. And I put them in the mail before we left for vacation. I think I had like 25 of them. I remember that picture. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, look, I did it. Like. I feel like I should have done this months ago. You know, it's always like feeling like you're behind for some reason. Right. Um, but then we went on vacation and then I got a couple calls, like while we were on vacation, um, I got two, uh, people who reached back out to leads from just those 25 letters and the one ended up becoming my first flip. Amazing. Yeah. And I love the story of your first flip. Like it Mm -hmm. was like, the, the people involved, like everything is so magical about this flip. Right. It feels like it was just, it's cliche, but just meant to be like, Mm -hmm. it was, I was ready for it. Like, and I put in the effort and then it all just kind of came together. And obviously there were hard parts and things to work through, but at the end of the day, it was an awesome experience. Yes. Okay. So you bought it September 30th Yeah, and when you initially were running numbers, what was your, what was your initial repair estimate? So I kind of took two snapshots in time here because I think it's important for anybody to know, especially if they're not familiar with construction, that nothing is ever set in stone with your timeline, with your quotes, with the scope of work whatever you think is going to happen on day one is not what happens at the end of the project. So I would take, um, 
you know, make copies of my deal analyzer as things would evolve and kind of see how it changed. So my very first initial deal analyzer that I put together, um, and this was just after having a conversation on the phone with the seller, he said, it's a three bed, two bath, 2000 square foot. Um, he told me that the basement was framed, but it wasn't finished. And this was a slow flip for him that had just kind of stalled. He's not local. He actually lives 10 minutes from where we used to live in St. Louis, which is one of our ironic points. I know. And, um, this was kind of just like his project house and he's retired now. He wants to travel. He just didn't have time to come down here and keep working on it. Um, so he had done a lot of the demo. I didn't have to do any demo. It was basically gutted and ready for a fresh start. Wow. Um, so that information that he gave me, I was able to kind of pull together some ballpark estimates for reno. And then my agent pulled the comps for me for a three, two. So for the original purchase price, I had a hundred thousand for the repair budget. I had 65,000 and we had a conservative ARV of 250,000. And that was going to give me a profit of about 35,000. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Very solid. Like that's a really solid project. Yes. So that was the initial. Yeah. <laughs> the next snapshot that I did was after actually getting under contract, yep. walking, inspections, having my contractors come through. Um, the purchase price went down slightly. I was able to get it at 94000 Um, Just a few things that came up in inspection that we were able to negotiate. Nice. Um, the repair uh, cost went up significantly, significantly. And what I didn't really account for in my original numbers was that whole basement that was only framed needed all drywall, all trim, like none of that was already there. So that's a really big number. Um, on top of that, the location that we're at here in Missouri is kind of in our own little bubble here. And we're two to three hours from like the next biggest city. So there's definitely a premium on like HVAC, plumbing, all the systems, all those things come at a premium kind of because they can, because we're, we're kind of isolated here. Um, so my repair estimate after all of that was 95,000 and my new ARV, um, after running it now as a four bed, three bath, including all the basement space, um, my ARV went up conservatively to 275. Okay. Um, we were looking, you know, upper two hundreds, but again, I was trying to be conservative. So I kind of just went with the 275 Nice, and that was looking at a profit of 33, 33,000. So we were in the same ballpark. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say with the price reduction and the repair allowance going up price reduction. So yeah, it was like with the same, basically the yeah, same. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much okay. the same. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So then Mm-hmm. What actually happened? So what actually happened? Um, well, my initial timeline was um, six months and we came in under that. Again, I was trying to be conservative there. Um, for the actual reno timeline, I was figuring about eight weeks. That ended up being more like 12 weeks um, just because you know things come up, but it also was right around Thanksgiving, Christmas. We lost a few weeks there scattered about, you know? 
Um, so the reno timeline was about 12 weeks, which I was still happy with. Again, I was being very conservative in all these numbers. Um, so as far as the budget for renovations, that went over for various reasons. Um, I don't know if I ever really went into detail on the septic issue that I had. Oh, no. Let's talk about it. So, okay. So the area that we're in here um, at the lake, there are environmental restrictions above and beyond even the state requirements here where we are um, in this area. And so their septic systems are very highly regulated. So during the inspection period, I had, I had it inspected. I made sure it was functioning. Um, it has to be a certain capacity of tank for the number of bedrooms. And we met that. So I thought, okay, all good. Well, the day after closing on the purchase, I go in to meet um, with the inspectors and get my permit. And I find out, nope, they have additional requirements. So here in our area, you have to have so many linear feet of lateral um, in the drain field per bedroom, which I didn't have. Well, we weren't sure what I had. So the only drawing they have recorded um, was from like the original construction in the eighties showing where they thought the septic system was. So I had to have all of that identified and laid out. Then we could figure out how much drain field I had. Turns out we were short. So then I had to have that surveyed then we had to have the surveyor prepare his drawings and propose adding on to the laterals um, and get it approved and then do the actual construction part. <laughs> so that was honestly like the biggest surprise. I mean, honestly, that blew my buffer. That, oh, that was yeah. My like, oh, septic right stuff. There, mm-hmm. Off of that. And it could have been way worse than it was, honestly. Like they, this was the uh, least cost, you know, impact of all the options. So I was grateful for it, but it was also just like, well, this is kind of a pain. Like, (laughs) because I, so it was the day after closing, I went in there and started talking with them about that. And literally we didn't have it done until the week before we listed, like they were literally backfilling the week before (laughs) it was the whole time. And the biggest thing was the survey lead time. And I know we've been talking about that in the group, like, Oh, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Supposedly. I'm supposed to get my survey today that I've been waiting for. for I mean, your hands are kind of tied because you're like, well, I have to have that. I was at a little bit of an advantage and that my brother actually works as a surveyor. He's not a licensed surveyor, but he was able to come out and he actually located all the property corner pins for me. And then the surveyor that I had come, he was like, that was great. That saved me hours where I could just go like find the pins. So yeah, my brother is helping out for sure. Um, but yeah, your hands are tied. Like you, you need it and just kind of got to wait. <laughs> yeah. We can't close without them. So yeah. Oh, right. around. You have to have a survey mm-hmm, before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then, then you're definitely stuck for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I totally get, I totally get this whole mm-hmm. surveying thing. So yes, the septic was the biggest, um, kind of unknown. And then really like the other reasons we went over, you know, trying to track down, there was no other like big, like, oh, that cost me 10 grand. It was a lot of like little things like, oh, we're going to fix the soffit and fascia. Oh, the gutters are installed wrong. Well, do we fix them or do we just replace them? Well, let's just replace them. That's a grand like, and hence the reason for buffers. But I think where I kind of made a mistake and I don't know if it was 
intentional or if I was trying to still make it work, make the numbers work. But when I got all my quotes together on the front end and I was like, okay, here's all my numbers and this is what it's going to be. I didn't really leave that solid buffer in the construction numbers that I also should have left. Cause I'm like, here's, here's this number plus this number plus this number. And like, I've worked in construction for 10 years. I know you still need the buffer, but I'm like, oh, you know, it's got to look good on paper or whatever, you know? And it's like, uh, and, and I don't think like, I wouldn't have changed anything, but just like, you know, in the future, I need to make sure that anything I can cushion, I need to cushion. Yes, totally. So yeah, that, I mean, that was just, you know, little things here and there popped up. Um, and like gaps in scope kind of like where I hadn't thought through everything. So the stairs going down to the basement were just like an unfinished wood. And I didn't really have anyone bid, or oh, we're going to carpet it or we're going to, you know, whatever, how we're going to finish it. That was just kind of a gap in scope. And so uh, we ended up staining them and painting them and making it nice. But, you know, that was an, another couple grand that wasn't accounted for. So all those things add up, obviously. Yes. 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 Wait, what did you end up spending on the stuff, septic stuff? It was about 6000 Okay. So, I mean, it wasn't terrible, but, you know, the buffer and the overall deal analyzer, I mean, that was gone. Like, right still off like six grand on stuff that's like under the ground. I know. I'm like, you see those two little cleanouts there in the yard? Like that was really important. I did that for like, I'm going to put that like on the list. Like, <laughs> Take here. pictures of it. Right. <laughs> Showcase <laughs> it. Stage it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I like some plants around it. Right. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, but it, God. but it has to be there. So, right. Right. Okay. So what did your repairs end up being? Uh, 114,000. Okay. Oh, I forgot to ask. Let's talk about how you financed all this stuff. Oh yeah. Okay. So I used hard money and private money. Um, the hard money lender that I used was one that I had vetted, you know, in the original, um, modules that you have us do. And, this one in particular, just before I even had a deal, the the contact that I had really took the time to like help me learn and help me understand. And anytime I would talk to him, it was guaranteed at least an hour. And it was, he would spend that whole time educating me and explaining things so to me. Cool. So we like really, you know, I really felt like he was trying to help me get going. Yes. Um, and they, I mean, they had good terms. The one caveat with them is that they are not purely asset-based. So we had okay. to have a personal guarantee. We had to do credit checks and we had to have, you know, a certain amount of money available for them to see. Um, and that was just something we kind of had to weigh mm-hmm. our risks when yeah. we were looking at it. I was like, you know, I have this connection with them. I feel like they'll, they'll help me through this process. And we, you know, my husband and I just kind of had to talk about it and it was like, I think this is the way I need to go for this. So, totally. and, and I think, you know, I don't regret that either. Um, I think it makes sense for us, but I know that a lot of people don't have that luxury. So right. just making sure you understand terms is so important. Yes. And asking questions, yes. ask questions. You got to ask. Yeah, if questions. you don't have someone that you're working with, that you're comfortable asking questions to, you probably shouldn't work with them. <laughs> like, that's fine. yeah, that's, yeah. they're not going to be an ally if you feel like you're, they're attacking you or coming yes. after you or anything like that. Yes. Oh my gosh. Great point. Um, okay. So you, do you had some of your own money in the deal? Yes, I did. I don't know if 
you'll remember, um, like the week before closing, I had a frantic post of like, so the other thing that I learned is this lender wouldn't allow uh, second lien positions on the title. Yep. And so they were considering the private money that I had received as like gift money and they wouldn't let me um, count that towards like the assets they needed to see. And it was a whole scramble like the week before. And I remember posting in the group, I was like, okay, this is what I'm, what I have going on. These are my options that I've come up with. I was like, I was again, making copies of my deal analyzer. And I was like, what if I just did all private money or, you know, and I was just trying to work through my options. Yeah. And, um, I had the luxury of having some funds available to us and, you know, again, we weighed our risks and I was like, I, I think I need to pull some of our own money. And so, um, and the reason to back up a little bit, the reason all that happened is our appraisal came in short. That's right. Yes. So we were looking for an ARV of 275 and the local appraiser that I had do the appraisal put it at 250. Um, but my hard money lender, again, having that relationship with him, he even was like, this appraisal is bogus. He's like, we know these numbers are better than this. That doesn't mean we can actually lend you more money. You got to bring more to the table, but we still believe in this deal and we know that um, you can make it happen. So they were still on board, but I had to make up that, that gap funding somehow. So that's, that's kind of how we ended up there. Got it. Okay. So uh, hard money, private money, some of your own money for like down payment and stuff. Yes. Got it. Okay. So you got all of that situated and you got it like you, you handled it quickly. Cause I remember you posting and like, you handled it. Like, I feel like you handled yes. it in like a day or something. I've, yeah, I've gotten pretty good at which in order to do this, you have to be able to make decisions like quickly. Yeah. And I think that my previous job, um, you know, there were a lot of good things and a lot of bad things there, not bad, but just, uh, things that weren't great in the day to day. But what I did learn, um, because I didn't have a lot of support and decision-making was I had to make a lot of decisions and right, wrong, or indifferent something, someone needed to decide. Right. And so I did learn that skill there. You know, you, you have to make a decision and move forward and then deal with the consequences. If so true. Right. And right. if you need to, if you need to make a different decision, make a different one, right? Yeah. Like you, you just have to keep making decisions. All right. So we went through some of the surprises. Yes. And the funding and all of that. So then you're, you end up with this beautiful four bedroom, two bath mm-hmm. home on the free, like with the yeah. lake view. Let oh us, my gosh. let's not forget that this beautiful home has this beautiful lake view. I know. And you list it. We listed at 329. Okay. Mm-hmm. When did you list in January? Yeah, it was, uh-huh. I think it was like the second week of January. Uh-huh. Um, and to back up a little bit there, uh-huh. for some reason in my mind, I thought that I was going to push this thing and I was going to have it on the market before Christmas, like early December. That was my goal. Mm-hmm. And the whole time I'm talking with my agent, I'm like, I think we can do it. I think we can do it. And it was like early December. And there were still just a lot of finishing touches that needed to be done. And I remember one night, you know, not sleeping, I'm laying there thinking of all the things that need to be done. And I was like, why am I doing this? I have plenty of time built into the schedule. Why am I putting this on myself, on my subs? I want to enjoy the holidays with my family. And so I sent an email, I think at like four in the morning to my agent. And I was like, 
Hey, we're going to shoot for January. Let's enjoy our holidays. And so we did that. And there was still crunch time issues in January, but you know, when there's room in the schedule and you can give yourself a little bit of freedom, like you don't have to put that much pressure on yourself. Yes. So I did that and it was great. We had wonderful holidays and then January, you know, we were ready to wrap it up and get it listed. So that's such a good point. I mean, really you have it built into your timeline. Why are you fighting yourself? Like, why are you making it so much harder on yourself when you have it built in? Right. That's such a good point. Oh my gosh. I do the same thing. Yeah. Like, and why? Like, I mean, yes, time is money, but like that much more money, you know, like, right. Like what's the trade-off your sanity? Exactly. Yeah. Like if you're over, I could see where it would be a lot more stressful and you're trying to get it wrapped up. But when you have that time built in, it's like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta definitely weigh the benefits for sure. I wonder if it's that part of me that always has to beat the GPS estimated time of arrival. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get this down by one minute. Watch me. Watch me. You watch me. See how long it takes. <laughs> See how long it takes me to get to wherever. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just the competitive. I think it's just, you know, we want to be successful. And, but I think what I've really learned, especially is, I'm the boss now. And so this trickles down to my subs and my family and everyone. So how I handle the pressure is going to affect everyone. A hundred percent. I think one of the things that so many house flippers, investors, small business owners in general fail to really acknowledge that we're leaders. We are leading whatever the vision is, we are leading it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we have to show up as that. I don't think people think of themselves as leaders. I think it's, um, it's a, there's a lot of work that can be done there. Yes. Yeah. Totally agree. Um, okay. So you thought it was me 275. Yeah. And I was being conservative and it was so funny because while we were wrapping up things, you know, before Christmas, my agent and her husband stopped by, he wanted to see it. And we literally were arguing like well, we think we can go higher. Should we do like 285 or 299? And I was like, I just don't want to be, you know, too aggressive. And my agent, I mean, she, man, she went to bat. Um, she, before she listed, she had some of her agent friends come through. She was calling appraisers. I mean, because she wanted to get it right for all of us. And she's like, you know, this market isn't always going to be this way. And if we can get it now, we need to do that. Um, while we can. And so, um, yeah, she, I mean, she pushed it, but I told her at one point, you know, kind of when we were getting ready to the list, I was like, if I was super comfortable at 299, that's probably a sign that we weren't pushing enough when we can. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we listed at 329 and we were under contract with them like a day. I'm so. sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you were. Um, yeah. What did you end up selling for? Um, we ended up selling at 325 um because there again wasn't an appraisal issue. Um again, we're in our little island here and all of our local appraisers are busy as can be. So our buyers are from out of state. So they were using an out-of-state lender who doesn't have connections to the local appraisers who know the market. So we got this new appraiser and <laughs> 
my sweet agent, um, she tried arguing with this guy and it was the appraisal gap was not much. And I was like, let's just, let's move on. Let's split the difference. We're good. Like it's, it's fine. And she's like, but this is just not accurate. He right. doesn't know what all right. this stuff is worth. And he probably doesn't like, right. you know, lake views are worth a certain amount and, and things like that in our area. So, sure. um, and I had a double lot, I bought the lot next door to go with it. And so those sort of things, um, you know, but again, like she just really believed in it and she pushed it. And, um, we had had several people looking at it and we were going to be getting several offers, but the problem is, uh, a lot of the back of offers were like conventional and people had to sell houses. And yep, I know everybody's got crazy markets. Um, but we have two very separate buyer pools here. Uh, we have the local like working class buyers who are here full-time all year round. And then we have the vacation second homeowners who come in and they're winning everything right now because they have the cash. And, yep. and it's my agent and I, and I have had several conversations because my heart is with the people who live here full-time and young families like us. I mean, just two years ago, we were trying to find a here, uh, a, you know, a home for our family to move here. And it, it was right before things got really crazy here. So we were able to find something, but, um, you know, we really want to try and help the families come live here as well and enjoy it. And it is growing rapidly to more than just a summer tourist destination. And, um, there's definitely a need to support, you know, the working families. Right. Yeah. It's hard. I know. Yeah. I know. Okay. So what did your profit end up being? 75,000. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I never know until these calls. I've only known once before Mm -hmm. the call. I've never, I, otherwise I don't know. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Congratulations. And thank you. Um, I struggled a little bit with not so much that number, but the actual like percent of profit kind of bothered me. Mm. Um, cause it's like coming up on 25% and that comes from my previous, uh, work. And I've mentioned this in the group before. I don't like sales mm-hmm. in general. It doesn't, it feels gross to me. I don't like generally like sales. And in my previous work, there was like the construction department that I was in and we would always have profits of like 10 to 15. Mm-hmm. And the sales side was always like 25, 40, mm-hmm. like jacking it up. And so to me, that was like, oh no, I'm like a gross salesperson now. Like, that's but, so interesting. You know, I went back over the numbers and stuff and I'm like, you know, should I, have, did I short the seller in some way? And I, I mean, we had conversations up right. front and he knew what he needed and I made the numbers work on the front end and, um, my rental numbers went over by quite a bit. Right. I did have cushions, you know, on the timeline, on my ARV, all of that stuff. And then just the crazy market just did its thing. So exactly. it's not so much like feeling guilty, but I did just like spend some time like, okay, how does this feel? But then it's also, well, now I can just take this money and go do more things. Like I can keep, I can keep going. Exactly. Um, and then also like, you know, just use some of it to give back and yep. things like that. So totally, totally money is evil, but I get it. I like, I get, I get the whole thing of that's a lot of money. And mm-hmm. should I be making this much money, having this much fun? Like, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that felt like 
too easy to make this much money. Like, isn't it supposed to be harder and more painful? Like, and not that it won't be for other deals, but it just, you do definitely like kind of look inward a little bit like, well, I mean, I guess, I guess it's okay. Like let's move forward. For the most part, that's how it feels. Mm -hmm. I have two deals that I'm like, oh my God, those were the worst things ever. Like painful, emotionally, financially, just awful. Mm-hmm. but over 15 years, that's not bad. Um, right. So yeah, it does generally feel like, oh my gosh, wow. Mm-hmm. It feels light and good. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. <laughs> okay. So when you, let's talk about feelings. When you, <laughs> my favorite, <laughs> it really is my favorite. Yay. Okay. Yeah. What were your, some of your battles? I got to tell you in my old job, um, they used to jokingly call me the office therapist and working as an engineer in a construction company, 90% of the employees are men. And they would literally come in my office and talk to the therapist about their feelings and their struggles. Like I love talking about that stuff. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. It's good stuff. Uh, so let me see here. Um, mindset. So initially, uh, the big thing was just the fear of losing money, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I had this big block about, you know, we spent the first 10 plus years of our career doing the traditional thing and, you know, building these 401ks and doing all the stuff that you're supposed to do and be a good, you know, whatever human employee person. Yep. And we did all that and we've got these, you know, good amounts built up. And the fear is like, what if I just destroy all that, that we just worked so hard doing, you know, in the first chunk of our career. Oh, Um, that's a big one. Yeah. And it, I mean, I was scared of that, but I was more so that was my husband's biggest concern. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I looked into flipping, um, I remember like, even before I found your podcast, I just like Googled, like, how do you flip a house? Mm -hmm. And it was like Dave Ramsey or someone was like, well, if you can't buy, you know, pay cash, don't do it. Well, I can't pay cash for a house right now. So I guess I'm not going to do it. And then, but I just kept coming back to it. And then I found your podcast and started learning about hard money and private money and all this. And I would always have it on in the car, like all the time, especially when my husband would get in the car and I'd like turn it up. I love it. Listen, you know, (laughs) listen to this, like, this is how we can do it. And, um, yeah, my kids, I think I told you one time, my kids referred to you as my coworker, Debbie, who was always talking in the car because <laughs> like the podcast is literally always on oh anytime God, I pick so them cute. up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, we both were educated on how do you actually do this without risking all this other, you know, stuff that we've worked hard for. Yeah. So that was the big, the biggest thing I would say for sure. Yes. Um, other struggles. I don't like putting myself out there in public ways. Mm -hmm. Like I struggled with that for a while. Like I put together my website and it was all pretty and it was all great how I wanted it. But like saying out to the world, Hey, this is what I'm doing. Like I've never liked attention. I don't like eyes on me. Like I just want to work over here and do my thing and, and I'll be good at it. And I don't need anyone to like shout me from the rooftops. Like I just want to do my thing over here. But you kind of have to shout it from the rooftops if you're gonna get business. So yep. that's been a big shift, but yeah. I'm getting more comfortable with it. Yes. That that's a big one for me. I I hate attention. I do not like attention. Okay. I all I constantly have to shift it to, but who isn't going like because I'm playing small, 
what seller isn't going to get to talk to me who I know I'm the best option for them because I know I'm going to do right by them. Right. Right. It's constant. I constantly have to remind myself like, okay, Mm -hmm. what's the why, what's the why, how, who can I serve? Who am I serving by putting myself out there in this scary way? Yeah. I totally get that. I had to make that shift from, you know, how I mentioned I never sales just kind of bother me, the general sales tactics, but I remember bringing it up in the group and you said, there's a big, you have a big shift you have to make there from the sales mindset to the service mindset. And once that kind of clicked, you know, I just have to keep coming back to that anytime it feels a little off. Just same. remember that. Yeah. I saying, I always have to come back to that too. That's a good one. Any others are those big, those are the big ones. Let's see mindset. I think one of the biggest like skills I've learned Mm -hmm. is setting out action items for myself. Like my whole previous career, I felt like I was just, you know, kind of chasing this endless wheel. And there was a lot of reacting to fires and negativity. And I feel like by setting up action items for myself, you're still going to, you're still going to have to react to issues and things like that. But I can dictate where my energy and my time goes in a positive way. I can say, I'm going to, I'm going to be proactive in these ways. And so like, that's something, you know, in the group, I make sure I put action items each week. And then I have like my planner and I put those same action items, but then even on the day to day, I say, okay, these are my action items to get me towards those goals. Yes. That's definitely the biggest skill I've taken away is how to act proactively. Yes. That's huge. Because if we're, if if we're just floating and just constantly reacting to things, it's first of all, like that's super draining. That's so exhausting to constantly just be reacting and talk about feeling completely out of control because you are, you are out of control if you're just reacting to other things constantly. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad. Finally, somebody appreciates the action items. <laughs> I, I love you them, and Sharon. I'm like, you yes. and Sharon are like two, every week. Right? We are there. Exactly. And look at y'all like, yeah, we're doing it. Maybe there's something to it. <laughs> it seems like there might be a correlation there. <laughs> right. That's funny. Any other kinds of things around that? Um, let's see. Those are my biggest mindset yeah. things. I would say. What's your favorite part? Of the entire process. Project management. Mm-hmm. I just, I love making the decisions. I mm-hmm. love, um, again, controlling where my time and energy is going. Mm-hmm. I love being able to control how I respond and what emotions I project. I like being able, I just, I just love the whole process of project management. And ironically enough, in my previous job, um, I worked as an engineer, but uh, they really wanted me to try project management. And I always knew that it was something that I think I would be really good at. Um, but in that environment, the project managers weren't given the support to be successful in a lot of ways. And I didn't want to subject myself to that environment. And so I never, I never went there. Um, but I did work as a project engineer um, on several big of our big jobs. And, you know, I learned a set of the set of same skills. So yeah, the project management part of it is just, I really enjoy that. Yeah, same. I didn't prep you with this question. It just came to mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hit me. If there was like, and I don't know if you, if you have an answer to this, was there a certain way you thought you would feel after you flipped your first house? 
Not necessarily. Um, I think so. Every woman that I've noticed that comes into this project, everyone has gone through some length of journey in their time, you know, in their life. And they all get to a point where they're like, that's it enough. I need to do this for me. Every single one. That's like the common, common denominator. Everybody comes in here and they're like, it is my time now. Yep. I had that experience in 2019 before I left my job and that I went through severe job burnout. Like I was, I was so over it. So, okay. And I, I mean, I just like, I closed off the outside world. Like I was just trying to get by, I was doing the work. It was, it was, yeah, it was rough, but I went through that time of like, I know how crappy that feels. Yeah. And so I'm just not going to like, I'm just not going to go back to that. Yes. So it wasn't that I was looking for like this big revelation after my first flip. Like I was just kind of looking for control of like my time and energy and making sure that it it felt good and it it felt great. Yes. Oh my God. Let's just do things that feel good. How about that? Right. It doesn't have to be so hard. It doesn't have to be so hard. It doesn't have to be so hard when you're making a choice, do the thing, choose the option that feels less terrible. Yeah. I mean, really (laughs) pretty straightforward. It's so true though. Like if we could just shift that one thing that maybe this time we don't have to get to a low Mm -hmm. in order to realize this isn't like this yeah. isn't working. Right? Unfortunately, we, it seems oh, like that's what we all need. We all have to go through something like horrible or over yep. completely overwhelming. Yep. And if that's what it takes, I mean, I guess that's what it takes. You know, I, uh, in 2019, when I kind of got overwhelmed, I was given multiple projects. I was traveling to both coasts. My kids were really young. Oh, I was like, I gosh. can't, this is too much. But I think back and I'm like, if I hadn't mm-hmm. been overwhelmed, I wouldn't have made a change. I right. would have just kept going along. Right. Like, Right. So, yeah, you know, I am, I'm grateful for all of it, but yeah, it seems like every woman that comes in here is like, okay, I'm, I'm done with all this. It's my time now. Yeah. So, yeah, it's so true. They're all at some, some sort of transition place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, you know that we are so appreciative of you. You're awesome. Thanks for being you. Like you from day one have just been such a big giver and supporter and just totally embody everything we want it to be like and feel like in the group. So really like, thank you so much for that. Yeah, no, I just, I feel like that's the best way, you know, you could probably make a living just off all the people that tell you thank you in a day. Like, but it's a lot to run and keep going and you have sis and you have Blair, but like if other people don't help, like it's, that's how it keeps going. So Thank like you. you have to contribute. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And like the, there's so much, the value in the group is people sharing their stories. Right. That like, that is why that group in that space is so mm-hmm. valuable because it normalizes all the fears. Mm-hmm. It normalizes feeling like we don't have enough time in the day, but we have to make the time. It normalizes. Oh my God, I've got this kid and driving for dollars, yep. put her in the back seat. Right. That's what you're going to do. You're going to put her in the back seat and you're going to drive around. Right. Right. Yeah. Like it normalizes all of that. And it makes it not just seem possible, but be possible because you see these everyday women doing yeah. it. You feel less lonely. And like, the, especially the downtimes when like you can go like, Hey, I'm struggling here. And, and people will just like flock to you and be like, Oh my gosh, you can do this. You know? And like, 
it's just, yeah, it's just really, really special place for sure. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your journey with Mm -hmm. us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for contributing in such a big way that you just consistently do. We appreciate you. I I appreciate you. Thank you. Okay. I'll see you in the group. See ya. Bye. Bye. I love it. Thanks, Amanda. Again, thank you for sharing your story with us. I know it's going to inspire somebody to get off the sideline and go do this thing already. Nobody has ever regretted getting started sooner, right? I mean, come on. What we usually hear is, gosh, I wish I had started sooner. What is it going to take for you to go chase this dream you have? Go do it. Anyone who's sitting on the sideline, choose one action step that you can take and you will commit to taking to get yourself one step closer to your goal. Commit to it and go do it. And then keep doing that every single day. One little action step. All right. All right. And if you want incredible support, you want the step-by-steps, you want the systems and the processes and all the things, plus an incredible community of like-minded, like-hearted, everyday women who are doing this thing exactly the way they want to be doing it, book a call with us and let's see if we're a fit to work together. All right. Go to herfirstflip.com and book your call. All right. Until next time, go out there, leave people in places better than you find them and keep chasing your curiosities. Bye y'all.